I want to thank everybody for coming. It's a hot day, and apparently our air conditioning system is still not repaired. Um, I think in light of that, for sure, we might think about taking a few minutes um, after the talk and before the questions if people want to get some water or something like that. It is outside. Um, it's a uh, great pleasure to welcome you all to the last of this year's Citizenship Speaker Series, um, sponsored by the Mershon Center, Department of Philosophy, College of Humanities, Department of Political Science. Um, our speaker today is Sam Scheffler from the University of California at Berkeley. I will just leave it at that. I forget his title, but I think it's Professor of Philosophy and law, and today he's going to speak on, is terrorism morally distinctive? Thank you for coming, Sam. The term terrorism may by now have become too ideologically freighted to have any analytic value. If the term is to be an aid to understanding, two opposed but complementary ways of employing it will have to be resisted. On the one hand, there's the tendency among the representatives and defenders of governments facing violent threats from non-state groups and organizations to use the term to refer to all forms of political violence perpetrated by non-state actors. On the other hand, there's the tendency among the representatives and defenders of non-state actors engaged in political violence to insist that the real terrorists are the officials or the military forces of those states with which they're locked in conflict. Under the combined influence of these two tendencies, the word terrorism is in danger of becoming little more than a pejorative term used to refer to the tactics of one's enemies. In this talk, I'll proceed on the assumption that the concept of terrorism retains more content than that and that we recognize a use of the term in which it refers to a special kind of phenomenon or class of phenomena. My primary aim will not be to produce a definition of the term, but rather to consider whether there's anything morally distinctive about the type of phenomenon to which it refers. Clearly, it will be impossible to do this without making some attempt to characterize that type of phenomenon. Still, my aim is not to produce a definition of the term terrorism or to identify necessary and sufficient conditions for its application. What I will do instead is to describe a certain familiar pattern to which terrorist actions often conform and to argue that instances of terrorism which fit this pattern do indeed have a morally distinctive character. There is no doubt that the term terrorism is frequently applied to conduct that does not fit this pattern. I won't insist that this is always inappropriate. I believe that the term is misapplied in some of these cases, but there may be other cases in which its use is appropriate, despite the absence of the morally distinctive features to which I'll call attention. Two other caveats are in order. First, I will assume that terrorism is a prima facie evil and that the use of terrorist tactics is presumptively unjustified, but I will remain agnostic on the question of whether there can ever be circumstances in which such tactics may nevertheless be justified, all things considered. Second, I take it to be obvious that, although terrorism is a prima facie evil and its use is presumptively unjustified, it may sometimes be a response to policies that are also unjustified and which may be as objectionable as the terrorist response itself. Furthermore, the fact that terrorism is unjustified does not mean that all of the measures used to oppose it are themselves justified. 
In short, I assume that terrorism is a prima facie evil, and my concern is with the kind of evil it is. Terrorism may sometimes be a response to great wrongs, and great wrongs may be committed in opposing it. But I'll not be concerned here with the nature of those other kinds of wrongs, nor will I address the question of whether the presumption against engaging in terrorism can ever be defeated. Some other recent writers have taken a different approach to this subject. Their primary focus, understandably enough, has been on questions about the justification of terrorism, and they've sought to arrive at a definition of the term that would cohere with their justificatory conclusions. This has led many of them to endorse a broad definition according to which terrorism is simply politically or ideologically motivated violence that is directed against civilians or non-combatants. In fact, this broad definition has become sufficiently widespread that Jeff McMahon, for one, refers to it as the orthodox definition. Its popularity may reflect a concern about some of the apparent implications of relying on a more narrowly circumscribed definition. Since any narrower definition will presumably fail to classify certain types of political violence against civilians as forms of terrorism, any such definition may seem to imply that the types of violence it excludes deserve less severe condemnation. The implica this implication is bound to seem troubling, especially if it's assumed that a narrow definition would single out forms of violence characteristically engaged in by non-state actors and exclude forms of violence characteristically engaged in by states. Given this assumption, it may seem that reliance on a narrow definition would unwittingly import an uncritical pro-state bias. Although I understand this concern, I think it is a mistake to begin an inquiry into the morality of terrorism by endorsing a broad definition. Such a starting point may lead us to overlook relevant distinctions and to give an oversimplified description of the moral terrain. I prefer to begin not by trying to settle on a definition, but rather by thinking about certain familiar forms of violence that most people would not hesitate prior to analysis to classify as instances of terrorism. I want to ask whether there's, anything moral, whether there's anything morally distinctive about these specific patterns of activity. As I hope will emerge from my discussion, this relatively narrow focus will serve to highlight some morally salient features and distinctions that might otherwise be easier to overlook. And as I'll try to make clear, such a focus need not import an uncritical pro-state bias, both because state activity can fall within the narrower sphere of activity on which I'll concentrate, and because many forms of violence that do not fall within that sphere nevertheless deserve severe condemnation, whether or not they are classified in the end as instances of terrorism. Although terrorism is a political phenomenon, the resources of contemporary political philosophy are of limited assistance in trying to understand it. In recent years, a valuable new philosophical literature on terrorism has begun to emerge, and philosophical interest in the subject has, of course, intensified since the September 2001 attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. But with one or two exceptions, the major political philosophies of the past several decades have been little concerned with the political uses of terror or with political violence more generally. On the whole, they've been philosophies of prosperity, preoccupied with the development of norms for regulating stable and affluent societies. To a great extent, for example, they've concerned themselves with issues of distributive justice, and they've implicitly addressed this topic from the perspective of a secure and well-established society with significant wealth to distribute among its citizens. 
even when philosophers have looked beyond the boundaries of their own societies and have addressed issues of global justice, as they've increasingly begun to do, they've generally done so from the perspective of affluent Western societies whose responsibilities to the rest of the world are in question precisely because their own power and prosperity are so great. Contemporary political philosophers have not in general needed to concern themselves with threats to the survival or stability of their societies or with the necessary or with the conditions necessary for sustaining a viable social order at all. None of this is intended as criticism. It is entirely appropriate that political philosophers should address themselves to the questions that actually vex the societies in which they live. But it does suggest that the recent political philosophy of the affluent liberal West may not afford the most useful point of entry for an investigation into problems of terror and terrorism. A number of contemporary writers on terrorism have found it natural to situate their discussions in relation to the traditional theory of the just war. For my purposes, it will be helpful to begin instead with the preeminent philosopher of fear in our tradition, Thomas Hobbes. It's striking that in his famous catalog of the incommodities of the state of nature, Hobbes describes fear as the worst incommodity of all. The state of nature, he says, is characterized by a war of every man against every man, and such a war comprises not merely actual battles, but in Hobbes' words, an extended tract of time in which the will to contend by battle is sufficiently known. This means that in the war of every man against every man, a condition of general insecurity prevails for an extended period. And Hobbes' description of that period is, of course, one of the most famous passages in political philosophy. In such condition, he says, there is no place for industry because the fruit thereof is uncertain, and consequently no culture of the earth, no navigation, nor use of the commodities that may be imported by sea, no commodious building, no instruments of moving and removing such things, as require much force, no knowledge of the face of the earth, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society, and which is worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death, and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, prudish, and short. Hobbes makes at least three points in this passage and the surrounding text that are relevant to our topic. First, there is his insistence on how bad a thing fear is. Continual fear, not momentary anxiety, but the grinding, unrelenting fear of imminent violent death is unspeakably awful. It is, he suggests, worse than ignorance. It's worse than the absence of arts, letters, and social life. It's worse than being materially or culturally or intellectually impoverished. Fear dominates and reduces a person. A life of continual fear is scarcely a life at all. Someone who is in the grip of chronic terror is in a state of constant distress. Hobbes writes, quote, He hath his heart all the day long gnawed on by, the, by fear of death, poverty, or other calamity, and has no repose nor pause of his anxiety but in sleep. End quote. The second point is that fear is incompatible with social life. On the one hand, sustained fear undermines social relations, so that in addition to being worse than various forms of poverty and deprivation, it also contributes to them by destroying the conditions that make wealth and commodious living possible. Fearful people lead solitary lives. Alone with their fears, trusting no one, they cannot sustain rewarding forms of interpersonal exchange. On the other hand, the establishment of society offers relief from fear. 
and in Hobbes's view, it's to escape from fear that people form societies. The fear of death, he says, is the first of, quote, the passions that incline men to peace, end quote. Indeed, and this is the third point, it's only within a, sta within a stable political society that the miserable condition of unremitting fear can be kept at bay. In addition to being incompatible with social life, sustained fear is the inevitable fate of pre-social human beings. Terrorists take these Hobbesian insights to heart. In a familiar range of cases, at least, they engage in violence against some people in order to induce fear or terror in others with the aim of destabilizing or degrading, or threatening to destabilize or, or degrade, an existing social order. Without meaning to beg the very questions of definition that I said I would not be addressing, I will call these the standard cases. I do so in part on the boringly etymological ground that these cases preserve the link between the idea of terrorism and the root concept of terror. But I'll also go on to argue, indeed it's my primary thesis, that the etymology points us to something morally interesting which might otherwise be easier to overlook. In the standard cases, as I'm stipulatively calling them, terrorists undertake to kill or injure a more or less random group of civilians or non-combatants. In so doing, they aim to produce fear within some much larger group of people. And they hope that this fear will in turn erode or threaten to erode the quality or stability of an existing social order. I don't mean that they aim to reduce the social order to a Hobbesian state of nature, but only that they seek to degrade or destabilize it or to provide a credible threat of its degradation or destabilization by using fear to compromise the institutional structures and disrupt the patterns of social activity that help to constitute and sustain that order. The fear that terrorism produces may, for example, erode confidence in the government, depress the economy, distort the political process, reduce associational activity, and provoke destructive changes in the legal system. Its ability to achieve these effects, effects derives in part from the fact that, in addition to being intrinsically unpleasant to experience, the fear that terrorism produces may inhibit individuals' participation in a wide range of mundane activities on which a polity's social and economic health depends. In some cases, people may become mistrustful of the other participants in the activity. One of the other passengers may be a hijacker or a suicide bomber. While in other cases, they may fear that the activity will be targeted by terrorists who are not participants. Someone may toss a hand grenade into the nightclub or movie theater. In the various ways I've mentioned and others that I'll describe, the fear that is generated by terrorism can lead to significant changes in the character of society and the quality of daily life. And at the extremes, these changes can destabilize a government or even the social order as a whole. In the standard cases, then, terrorists use violence against some people to create fear in others with the aim of degrading the social order and reducing its capacity to support a flourishing social life, or at least with the aim of credibly threatening to produce these effects. Terrorist violence may, of course, have many other aims as well, even in the standard cases. The terrorists may hope that their violent acts will attract publicity for their cause, or promote their personal ambitions, or provoke a response that will widen the conflict, or enhance their prestige among those they claim to represent. 
or undermine their political rivals or help them to achieve a kind of psychological or metaphysical liberation. Nor need they conceive of their actions exclusively in instrumental terms. They may also be seeking to express their rage, or they may believe that their victims are not in the relevant sense innocent, despite being civilians or non-combatants, and they may think of themselves as administering deserved forms of punishment or retribution. There are many other respects in which what I'm calling the standard cases of terrorism can differ from one another. But they all have the following minimum features. First, the use of violence against civilians or non-combatants. Second, the intention that this use of violence should create fear in others, including other civilians and non-combatants. And third, the further intention that this fear should destabilize or degrade an existing social order, or at any rate, that it should raise the specter of such destabilization or degradation. The destabilization or degradation of the social order may itself have many different aims. Among other things, it may be intended, A, as a prelude to the imposition of a different social order or the reconstitution of the existing order on different terms, B, as a way of effecting some change in the policy of an existing state or society, C, as a form of deserved punishment and hence as an end in itself, or D, as some combination of these. What makes terrorism of the standard kind possible is the corrosive power of fear. As Hobbes suggests, sustained or continual fear is a regressive force, both individually and socially. It can induce the unraveling of an individual's personality. And as we've already seen, its cumulative effects on large numbers of people can degrade the social order and diminish the quality of social life. Its capacity to achieve these effects is enhanced by the infectiousness of fear, the fact that it can so easily be transmitted from one person to another, even when the second person is unaware of the reasons for the first person's fear. The latter case is the one that Hobbes called panic terror, which he described as, quote, fear without the apprehension of why or what. In such cases, he added, I'm quoting, there is always in him that so feareth first some apprehension of the cause, though the rest run away by example, everyone supposing his fellow to know why. And therefore this passion happens to none but in a throng or multitude of people." End quote. The fear induced by terrorism does not ordinarily fit the description of panic terror, since those who are subject to it normally know the reasons for their fear. But terrorism still benefits from the infectiousness of fear because the fact that something has frightened one person may itself frighten another person, and the fearful attitudes of different people can exert mutually reinforcing and intensifying effects. In this age of instant communication, moreover, the capacity of terrorist acts to cause fear and to exploit the phenomena of mutual reinforcement and intensification is greatly increased. The news media can be counted on to provide graphic coverage of each terrorist outrage so that a bomb blast anywhere can generate fear and insecurity everywhere. These attitudes in turn become newsworthy and are dutifully reported by the media, thus contributing to the syndrome of mutual reinforcement. I said earlier that in the standard cases, terrorist violence is usually directed against a more or less random group of civilians or non-combatants. It's difficult to be more precise. Sometimes virtually any civilians will do. At other times, terrorists will select a particular population group, 
defined by occupation or ethnicity or religion or social class and will target people indiscriminately within that group. Or they'll select a symbolic target, the World Trade Center, and those who are killed or injured will be those who happen to be in the chosen location at the wrong time. Even when the target class is maximally wide, <clears throat> the victimization is random in the sense that it is indiscriminate within that class, but not in the sense that it's pointless or irrational. And even when the target class is relatively narrow, there's an advantage in preserving some degree of indiscriminateness within that class. In both cases, the randomness or indiscriminateness has the same point. It's to maximize within the relevant parameters the numbers of people who identify with the victims thus subverting the defensive ingenuity with which people seize on any feature that distinguishes them from the victims of misfortune to preserve their own sense of invulnerability. In this way, the appearance of randomness is used to exploit the psychic economy of identification in such a way as to maximize the spread of fear. This is not to say that it's always easy to achieve one's aims using terrorist tactics. In fact, it's usually difficult for terrorist acts to destabilize an otherwise stable social order. This is not merely because such acts can backfire and reduce supports for the terrorists and reduce support for the terrorist goals, though that's certainly true. Nor is it merely because of the large armies, police forces, and intelligence services that stable societies normally have available to fight those who employ terrorism. Just as important is the fact that stable societies and individuals raised in such societies have substantial social and psychological resources with which to resist the destructive effects of fear. People can be remarkably tenacious in their determination to preserve the lives they've made for themselves in society, and if fear can be infectious, so too can courage and the, determin and the determination to persevere in the face of great danger. These, too, have mutually reinforcing and intensifying effects. But terrorism doesn't need to destabilize a social order altogether in order to transform and degrade it. And as we've seen, often such transformation and degradation will suffice to enable those who employ terrorist tactics to achieve some or all of their aims. The problem is that living with fear can have corrosive effects even for those who are courageous and determined to persevere. One might put the point provocatively and say that courage itself, or the need to sustain it over long periods of time, can be corrosive. Living each day with the vivid awareness that one's children may be killed whenever they leave home, or that a decision to meet one's friends at a restaurant or cafe may result in violent death, or that an ordinary bus ride on a sunny day may end with lumps of flesh raining down on a previously peaceful neighborhood, exacts a cost. Nor is this true only if one yields to one's fears and keeps one's children at home, gives up socializing, and avoids public transportation. It is also true if one grits one's teeth and resolves to carry on as normal. People often say, in explaining their determination to maintain a normal routine in the face of terrorist activities or threats, that to do otherwise would be to give the terrorists what they want. This is not wrong, but it understates the problem. Maintaining one's normal routine does not suffice to preserve normalcy. Terrorism undermines normalcy almost by definition. One cannot, simply through an act of will, immunize oneself against the effects of continual fear and danger on one's state of mind or on the quality of one's life. 
These effects are distressingly easy for groups that use terrorist tactics to achieve and distressingly difficult for the members of targeted populations to avoid. This is one reason why terrorism is so popular, even if it's not always ultimately successful. Apologists for terror often claim that it's the weapon of the weak, who have no other tools available for fighting back against their oppressors. This may be true in some circumstances. As far as I can see, however, those who engage in terrorism rarely invest much time in exploring the availability of other tools. All too often, terrorism is the tool of choice simply because the perceived advantages it offers are so great. It costs relatively little in money and manpower. It has immediate effects and generates extensive and highly sensationalized publicity for one's cause. It affords an emotionally satisfying outlet for feelings of rage and the desire for vengeance. It induces an acute sense of vulnerability in all those who identify with its immediate victims. And insofar as those victims are chosen randomly from among some very large class, the numbers of people who identify with them is maximized so that an extraordinary number of people are given a vivid sense of the potential costs of resisting one's demands. Figuratively and often literally, terrorism offers the biggest bang for one's buck. If what I've said to this point is on the right track, then it does seem that terrorism is morally distinctive, at least insofar as it conforms to the pattern of what I've been calling the standard cases. In these cases, at least, it differs from other kinds of violence directed against civilians and non-combatants. By this, I don't mean that it's worse, but rather that it has a different moral anatomy. By analogy, humiliation is morally distinctive, and so too are torture, slavery, political oppression, and genocide. One can investigate the moral anatomy of any of these evils without taking a position on where it stands in an overall ranking of evils. Many people are pluralists about the good. We can be pluralists about the bad as well. In the standard cases, some people are killed or injured, the primary victims, in order to create fear in a larger number of people, the secondary victims, with the aim of destabilizing or degrading the existing social order for everyone. The initial act of violence sets off a kind of moral cascade, death or injury to some, anxiety and fear for many more, the degradation or destabilization of the social order for all. Nor is this simply a cascade of harms. It is, instead, a chain of intentional abuse. For those who employ terrorist tactics do not merely produce these harms, they intentionally aim to produce them. The primary victims are used, their deaths and injuries are used, to terrify others. And those others are used, their fear and terror is used, to degrade and destabilize the social order. The fact that the secondary victim's fear and terror is used in this way is one thing that distinguishes the standard cases from other cases in which civilians are deliberately harmed in order to achieve some military or political objective. In other cases of deliberate politically motivated violence against civilians, the perpetrators display a callous disregard not only for the lives of their victims, but also for the misery and suffering of the people who care about or identify with them. Since those who commit such acts are willing to kill or injure their victims, it's hardly surprising that they should be indifferent to the intensely painful human reactions, fear, horror, and grief 
that their acts are liable to produce in others. In the standard cases, however, <clears throat> the primary victims are killed or injured precisely in order to elicit such reactions, precisely in order to elicit fear, horror, and grief, so that those reactions can in turn be exploited to promote the perpetrator's ultimate destabilizing objectives. Using Kantian terminology, we might say that the primary victims are treated not just as means to an end, but as means to a means. That is, they're treated as means to the end of treating the secondary victims as means to an end. Those who engage in this kind of terrorism do not merely display callous indifference to the grief, fear, and misery of the secondary victims. Instead, they deliberately use violence to cultivate and prey on those reactions. This helps to explain why there's something distinctively repellent about terrorism, both morally and humanly. As I've said, not all instances of terrorism fit the description of the standard cases as I've described them. Sometimes, for example, terrorist tactics may be employed not to destabilize or degrade an entire social order, but rather to make the place of a particular social group or class within that order insecure, as in cases where the ambition is to drive the members of the targeted group into another country or territory, so-called ethnic cleansing. In cases like this, the description of the moral cascade will differ somewhat, but the moral anatomy of these cases will still bear a clear and recognizable relation to that of the standard cases. Other instances in which the term terrorism is likely to be employed may differ more substantially from the standard cases. An example might be a situation in which violence is directed against civilians solely for the purpose of provoking a response and thereby producing an escalation in the level of a conflict. The fact that the violence also generates fear, although predictable and not unwelcome, is no part of the perpetrator's aim. Still other cases, meanwhile, may seem sufficiently different from the standard cases that the propriety of the term terrorism becomes doubtful, even if it's often applied to them. This may be true, for example, of targeted political assassinations or acts of sabotage. In general, we should be sensitive to the wide variety of actual cases we're likely to encounter, and we should avoid theory-driven oversimplifications of the phenomena. My own aim, as I've said, is not to produce a definition of the term terrorism or to provide a set of necessary and sufficient conditions for its application. Accordingly, I'll take no position on the question of how far an act can depart from the standard cases while remaining an instance of terrorism. In any event, the fact that some form of conduct is not best thought of as amounting to terrorism does not mean that there's no objection to it. As the doctrine of the pluralism of the bad reminds us, there are many different kinds of atrocities and many different forms of horrific behavior, and we learn more by attending to the differences among them than by assimilating them all to a single category. One of the many unsettling features of the Bush administration's post-9-11 moral discourse, with its frequent references to evildoers and bad guys, is that it uses moral categories to inhibit rather than to promote moral understanding. It relies on simplifying dichotomies that appeal to psychologically primitive sources of moral motivation, and in so doing, it encourages a dangerously reductive conception of the moral domain. 
As I noted at the outset, the term terrorism is sometimes used by representatives and defenders of governments facing violent threats from non-state groups and organizations to refer to all forms of political violence perpetrated by non-state actors. This makes it impossible by definition for states to engage in terrorism. Although I have not endorsed this or any other definition, my narrow focus on the standard cases and my emphasis on terrorism's destabilizing aims may seem to imply that it can only be the tactic of insurgents or other non-state actors. But this is not, in fact, a consequence of my view. States can certainly employ terrorist tactics in the manner I've described as a way of destabilizing other societies. They can do this in wartime through the use of such tactics as terror bombing, <clears throat> or in peacetime through covert operations tar targeting another country's civilian population. And domestically, a government might use such tactics in order to create a limited degree of instability with the aim of discrediting its opponents or generating increased support for repressive policies. Of course, it's true in such cases that the government should not appear to be the perpetrator of the terrorist acts, since its aim is precisely to ascribe those acts to others. Still, the fact remains that governments can engage in terrorism both against other societies and with the qualification just mentioned, domestically as well. Governments may also use terror as an instrument of policy without this amounting to terrorism of the standard type. Indeed, here I'm prepared to engage in at least partial stipulative definition and to say that governments may use terror as an instrument of policy without this amounting to terrorism at all. This will be true, in my view, when a government uses terror internally and is willing to be seen as doing so, in order to stifle dissent and opposition, to maintain its grip on power, and to preserve the established order. I will use the term state terror to describe this phenomenon, and in the usage I've stipulated, there's an important contrast between state terror and terrorism, even terrorism perpetrated by states. The point of the stipulation is not to suggest that one of these phenomena is better or worse than the other, but rather to highlight what I take to be a significant distinction between two different political uses to which terror may be put. Terrorism, as I understand it, standardly involves the use of violence to generate fear with the aim of destabilizing or degrading an existing social order. State terror, as I understand it, standardly involves the use or threat of violence to generate fear with the aim of stabilizing or preserving an existing social order. Of course, other people may use the terms terrorism and state terror in, other, in different ways, but the point is not merely terminological, and anyone whose use of the relevant terminology differs from mine needs to find some other way of expressing the contrast I've described. It's an interesting fact that fear and terror can be used either to undermine an existing social order or to preserve one. They can be made to serve not only revolutionary, but also conservative purposes. How is this possible? How, in particular, is it possible that fear and terror can be used to preserve a social order if, as I said earlier, they undermine social life? Hobbes, who certainly understood the second of these points, also emphasized the first. He wrote, quote, 
Of all passions, that which inclineth men least to break the laws is fear. Nay, excepting some generous natures, it is the only thing when there is appearance of profit or pleasure by breaking the laws that makes men keep them, end quote. For Hobbes, fear can be used to preserve order because it is a passion, in his words, that relates to power. In the state of nature, in the war of all against all, each person has sufficient power to pose a threat to every other person. Hence, each person has reason to fear every other person. And this undermines the conditions of social life. But the concentration of power in a sovereign produces a redistribution of the capacity to inspire fear. And this makes social life possible. On the one hand, people's attitudes toward one another need no longer be dominated by fear and mistrust. And so the development of social relations is no longer inhibited. On the other hand, everyone has reason to fear the sovereign's power and hence to obey the sovereign's laws, and so the social order is stabilized. But this suggests that fear does not, after all, undermine social life, at least not in all cases. It undermines social life only when, in the absence of a common authority, fear is radically decentralized and each person has reason to fear every other person. There's something to this, but as stated, it overlooks the differences between ordinary political authority and a regime of state terror. In a, de in a decent society that is governed by the rule of law, crimes are punished and the fear of punishment can be said to provide individuals with a reason for obeying the laws. Here the phrase fear of punishment functions as a way of characterizing a certain kind of reason for action. People's presumed desire to avoid punishment is a consideration that counts in favor of obedience. But this doesn't mean that people are actually afraid or that they lead lives full of fear. On the contrary, one of the primary advantages of the rule of law and of a predictable, publicly promulgated and impartially administered system of punishments and sanctions is that it enables people to avoid fear. By structuring their lives in accordance with what the law allows, they can predictably avoid the punishments and sanctions attached to violations. Of course, people who break the law or are accused or suspected of doing so may find themselves genuinely fearing punishment. But leaving aside false accusations and unwarranted suspicions, law-abiding citizens need not actually experience any fear of the state, even if we can truly say that the fear of punishment gives them a reason to obey. In a well-functioning state, the fear of punishment is not normally a condition of fear at all. For this reason, it provides no obstacle to the development of rich social relations and indeed helps to facilitate them. For the very same reason, however, it also provides no counterexample to the thesis that a state of continual fear undermines social life. Things are very different under a regime of state terror. Here the state deliberately keeps people afraid as a way of maintaining its grip on power and preserving the established system. In order to do this, it deliberately eliminates the features of impartiality and predictability associated with the rule of law. Power is exercised and laws are administered arbitrarily. Although there may be forms of conduct that can be reliably be expected to result in arrest and punishment, there are few, if any, reliable ways of avoiding such outcomes. Networks of secret agents and informers may denounce people for any reason or none, 
and there is no independent judiciary or regime of rights to protect those who are accused. People may be imprisoned or lose their jobs or have their property confiscated or be tortured or killed without ever knowing why. Since citizens have no basis for confidence in their ability to avoid such calamities, they are kept perpetually fearful, uncertain, anxious. And since they have no way of knowing who may be an informer or an agent of the state, they're kept perpetually wary and mistrustful of one another. The point of inducing this Hobbesian condition of ongoing mutual mistrust is precisely to restrict the development of social relations and to inhibit the cooperative and solidaristic attitudes that accompany them. A regime that rules by terror recognizes these relations and attitudes as potential threats. By using fear to constrict and impoverish social life, it confirms both that fear undermines social relations and that a free social life is the antidote to fear. Thus, the fact that genuine terror can be used to preserve an established order does not falsify the observation that fear undermines social life, for social relations are indeed inhibited under a regime of terror. Notwithstanding the existence of centralized rule and a set of rigidly constrained social and economic institutions, such a regime has as much in common with the Hobbesian state of nature as it does with a political society that is subject to the rule of law. I've drawn, I've drawn the contrast between a regime of terror and the rule of law starkly, but I don't mean to deny that there can be intermediate cases. On the one hand, even the most brutal totalitarian states may need to provide selective relief from terror for certain groups of people in order to achieve their aims. On the other hand, even relatively decent governments may find it irresistible at times to use fear as a way of deflecting criticism or deflating political opposition. A judiciously administered dose of alarm can do wonders in inducing a compliant frame of mind and encouraging people to rally round their leaders. Ironically, the fear of terrorism, which is in part to say the fear of fear, seems to be a particularly effective tool for this purpose. This is one reason why governments are so eager to label their enemies as terrorists. In addition to discrediting them, the very use of the label may help to induce a state of timid docility in an otherwise restive population. But none of this undermines the argument I've been developing. The upshot of that argument is that there are two different ways in which fear might be said to be capable of contributing to the preservation of order. Although Hobbes, to the detriment of his political theory, did not distinguish between them, neither of them falsifies the claim that fear undermines social life. It is true that when the rule of law prevails, the fear of punishment gives people a reason to obey, yet social life is not inhibited. But since the fear of punishment is not in these circumstances a condition of actual fear, the idea that fear undermines social life remains intact. Under a regime of terror, by contrast, genuine fear is indeed used to preserve order. But since social relations are severely restricted under such a regime, the tendency of fear to compromise social life is confirmed rather than disconfirmed. This argument may seem to prove too much for my purposes, however. If, as I've insisted, a regime of state terror does indeed undermine social life, then it may seem that such a regime cannot, after all, be said to aim at stabilizing or preserving the existing social order. The undermining of social life is incompatible with the preservation of the social order. 
What my analysis really shows, it may be suggested, is that both terrorism and state terror use fear to destabilize or degrade the social order. The difference between them is just that terrorism hopes thereby to undermine the existing political configuration, whereas state terror hopes to reinforce or consolidate that configuration. I resist this interpretation because I believe that state terror often aims to stabilize more than just the existing political configuration. It also seeks to preserve a set of tightly controlled social and economic institutions, and in this sense it aims to stabilize an entire social order, albeit a severely constrained one, and not merely a political regime. In other words, although it uses fear to inhibit certain kinds of social relations and thus to restrict social life, it nevertheless seeks to preserve a rigidly constrained social order in the sense just specified. <coughs> to be sure, the restrictions on social life mean that the social order that is preserved will be, in human terms, a radically impoverished and indeed dystopian one. Still, I think it would be a mistake to deny that it is a social order at all, or to ignore the fact that the regime aims to stabilize and preserve it. If this is correct, then it's possible to reaffirm and expand upon my earlier observations about the relationship between terrorism and state terror. In the standard cases, I've said, terrorism involves the use or threat of violence to generate fear with the aim of degrading or destabilizing an existing social order. State terror, on the other hand, standardly involves the use or threat of violence to generate fear with the aim of stabilizing or preserving an existing social order, albeit a severely constrained and impoverished one. There is, accordingly, a significant difference between terrorism, even terrorism perpetrated by a state, and state terror. They represent different ways of using terror for political purposes, but they exploit a common mechanism, the capacity of fear to undermine social life. As I've argued, terrorism of the standard kind uses this mechanism to degrade the institutional structures and patterns of activity that help to constitute and sustain an existing social order. State terror, by contrast, uses the same mechanism to subvert or prevent the emergence of cooperative social relationships that might pose a threat to the power of the state or to the character of the prevailing social and economic arrangements. People are kept chronically fearful and mistrustful of one another <clears throat> so that even if they have the resources and opportunities to do so, they'll be unwilling or unable to form the kinds of groups, associations, and social networks that might become independent centers of influence, facilitate the emergence of critical voices and perspectives, or in other ways challenge the status quo. Under a regime of state terror, fear is used by the state to keep social relations impoverished so that a rigidly constrained social and economic order can be preserved and protected from challenge. I think that this contrast helps to explain why terrorist violence is so often calculated to attract maximum publicity, whereas so much of the violence associated with state terror is carried out in secret. Terrorists aim to promote chaos and disarray as a way of subverting the social fabric. They want people running for cover. The perpetrators of state terror want to promote order and regimentation. They want people marching in step. 
Spectacular acts of public violence are designed to produce disruption and panic. The shadowy operations of secret police and paramilitary groups are designed to produce silence, conformity, and the desire to make oneself inconspicuous, to attract no notice. One additional complication should be noted. I've been distinguishing between terrorism and state terror, between the use of fear to degrade or destabilize an existing order and the use of fear to stabilize or preserve an existing order. But I've also emphasized that states can engage in both forms of activity. It's natural to wonder whether the reverse is also true. Can non-state groups use fear to stabilize an existing order? Although the label state terror is obviously not appropriate to such cases, I believe that the answer is yes. For example, non-state groups may use violence to terrorize an oppressed or subordinated population with the aim of reinforcing an established system of caste or hierarchy or defeating attempts to dismantle such a system. Think, for example, of the Ku Klux Klan. We can think of these as cases of sub-state terror, in which fear is used to police the boundaries of a social hierarchy, to block the development of new social movements, or to inhibit social change. The use of fear to stabilize an existing order is no more the exclusive province of the state than the use of fear to destabilize such an order is the exclusive province of non-state actors. The reason for distinguishing between terrorism on the one hand and state or sub-state terror on the other is to highlight the distinction between these two different uses of fear and not to suggest a distinction between two different categories of agents. So let me conclude. The title of this paper poses a question. The answer that has emerged from my discussion is as follows. Terrorism is morally distinctive insofar as it seeks to exploit <clears throat> the nexus of violence and fear in such a way as to degrade or destabilize an existing social order. Terrorist acts may have many functions other than the degradation of the social order, and the degradation of the social order may itself be intended to serve different purposes. But insofar as it conforms to the standard pattern I've described, Terrorism has a morally distinctive character, whatever other functions and purposes individual instances, instances of it may also serve. If, as is often the case, <clears throat> the term is applied more widely, then one consequence may be that terrorism so understood is not always morally distinctive. For example, I said earlier that many philosophers now believe the term should be taken to refer to any politically motivated violence that's directed against civilians or non-combatants. If we accept this usage, then some acts of terrorism may turn out not to differ much in their moral character from murders and assaults that do not qualify for the terrorist label. David Rodin, who advocates a definition of this sort, concludes that terrorism is just, quote, the political or ideological species of common violent crime, end quote. This usage makes the distinctive character of what I'm calling the standard cases easier to overlook. And the distinctiveness of those cases will certainly be easier to overlook if terrorism is defined instead as political violence that is perpetrated by non-state actors. If we rely on this kind of definition, then some of what I've been calling the standard cases will turn out to be instances of terrorism, while others will not. 
I don't take these considerations as reasons for insisting on a definition of terrorism that limits it to the standard cases. But I do think that the word terrorism is morally suggestive precisely because terror is its linguistic root. And that if we define the term that in a way that effaces or even breaks the connection between terrorism and terror, as the definitions just mentioned do, then we're liable to miss some of the moral saliences toward which the word terrorism gestures. The currency of that particular word, which adds to the already rich vocabulary we have for describing violence of various kinds, testifies to the power of fear and to the peculiar moral reactions evoked by its deliberate use for political ends. It's perfectly possible that, under the pressure of ideology or confusion or convenience, our usage of the term may evolve in such a way that it applies in some cases where fear plays no role and does not apply in some of what I have been calling the standard cases. Indeed, this may already have happened. But then we'll need to find other ways of reminding ourselves of how bad a thing fear is, of the diabolical ways in which it can be provoked and exploited for political purposes, and of the specific character of our moral reactions when that happens. Okay, as long as I can do that too. Yeah. <laughs> Shall I just call on people? Yes. Well, thank you. It's very, very interesting. Although I, I noticed that I think the direction of your um, uh, thinking is actually in reverse to the progressive way that international law is trying to approach these problems. Um, I think, in, in, and I'm wondering if you would reflect on how, what relevance you think your approach might have to the law. I'm thinking of the fact that under international law, we try to move increasingly toward equating all of this behavior, whether it's by the state, individuals, or criminals, you know, terrorists or criminals, not state actors, terrorists or criminals, that we consider it unlawful and we try to control it and contain it based on the uh, harm it does to people and not on what motivated, and that is a way of you know, trying to contain it, and that the law increasingly, and one of the great uh, retrogressive moves of the Bush administration is to, in fact, uh, enhance terrorist status by putting them on some kind of different moral plane than uh, criminals, whereas the British, the Germans, societies that have successfully uh, um, struggled with terrorism, far more successfully than the U.S. and Israel, have kept terrorism within the criminal realm and responded to it through their criminal law uh, methods and not through their military and so forth in these different planes. Um, well, that's a great point, and I haven't really thought about or tried to think through the applications of what I'm saying to, uh, to questions of international law. I think the tendencies you describe are part of, you know, are part of the pressures, some of them quite legitimate pressures, that lead people to, um, to want to assimilate terrorism to other things. And my only concern is that we do miss something if we do that. Uh, maybe in how these things are classified legally, there are good reasons for assimilating different things to each other. But I think 
one can only be confident of that if one is clear at the, from the outset about what actual differences there are. You may decide that given, even given the differences, for other reasons it's important to treat them the same way for legal purposes. But I think that if you just act as if there weren't distinctive features of certain kinds of acts, then it's, it tends to obscure the phenomena. And people on some level do know that there are distinctive features. I mean, that certain things, that certain things evoke different kinds of reactions. So I'm really, this is an exercise in, as it were, moral phenomenology. It's trying to get clear about, you know, what, what repels us about terrorism that doesn't in, in quite the same way repel us about other repellent things, even though some of the things that repel us are exactly the same. Um, and we may decide once we know that that, well, that's interesting, but it's not enough of a difference, so there are other reasons why, for legal purposes, we're going to treat them the same. I think we're better off making that decision after we know uh, what the moral phenomenology is. Yes? Is there a place for looking more into the men's Um, okay, well, on the first point, I wasn't saying, uh, I, I um, deliberately set aside the question of whether terrorism of the standard kind could ever be justified. Um, I said it's a prima facie evil, and, um, but that I wasn't going to address the question of whether 
there might be cases in which all things considered it could be justified. Um, the case of Mandela, which you mentioned, if it fits the description of the standard cases, might be a, case, a t good test case for whether one thinks uh, it could be justified. And certainly, um, the, um, the idea that there was a limiting proviso built into the uh, built into the terrorist plan, if that's what it was, um, certainly might bear on the question of whether we think it was justified or excusable, and it might certainly affect our assessment of Mandela uh, and his comrades as uh, individuals. So I, um, I, I mean to be leaving room for the kind of, for kind of discussion of particular instances and how they might differ from others and what might perhaps or not make some case or other uh, justifiable. I mean, I can imagine it going either way in Mandela's case, maybe saying this wasn't justified case, maybe saying he was a heroic figure, but it still wasn't justified. Um, and um, so I certainly, I mean, I accept the, uh, I, I see the issue, and I didn't mean to be sort of preempting that kind of reflection. I don't know how it would come out in this or any other particular case. Um, the second question, um, what I wanted to say about state terror is that it characteristically aims to preserve a social order of a certain kind, you know, a, a severely constrained and limited social order, but a social order. So if you think of the great authoritarian terror states of, uh, of modern times, I think if they, they wanted a social order of some kind, things happened in those societies. There were, you know, there were economies, there was currency, there were schools, there were institutions, there were buildings, there were, you know, postal services, people got married. It wasn't that there wasn't a social order. There was a social order. It was just horrible. Um, but they wanted to preserve it just as horrible as it was. So um, I wanted to make that point that fear could be used to preserve a social order and to note that it's an interesting contrast with the case in which the fear is used to undermine, disrupt the social order. Now, the case you mentioned, the case of a government responding to acts of terrorism against it by restricting civil liberties or whatever, I would describe, I guess, as neither of the above. I would describe it as a case in which uh, the government alters the terms of the existing social order in response to something or other, and whether, it, whether it's doing so is justified or unjustified is a separate question. Um, you know, it may not use fear exactly to do it. It may use fear to do it, but it may just use, you know, legislation. <laughs> um, and you know, sometimes, to some degree, the legislation may be motivated or aided by fear. But um, that wouldn't fit, I guess, my definition either of state terrorism or of uh, state terror or of terrorism. It's a well, kind of, yeah. The primary example I have in mind is that state terror was the terror that I fled in my youth, which was the South African nationalist government, using legislation to enable the police to imprison people without time. Yeah. To torture them and maybe And the, the so-called order that was maintained uh, it was just so rotten as not to be worth staying to enjoy. And it, it, the freedoms, the constitutional protected or otherwise, enjoyed by custom as in Britain or by constitutional yeah. um, amendment here, 
are so important to our conception of social order, but I think one should pay attention to that when talking about whether the state is aiming to preserve an order yeah. and the terrorists are seeking to undermine an order. Yeah, yeah. We need to be clear. I mean, what sorts of orders are we talking about? Right. Look, I, I, I want to agree with completely with what you're saying, I don't want in any way to belittle the rottenness of, um, of, the, of, the, of the order that we're talking about. And I don't want to deny in any way that the change from a sort of liberal regime, roughly, to a regime of that kind was a move to establish a regime of state terror. Um, all I want to say is that even that there's a difference between a rotten state order and no state order. Um, there are institutions, there are practices, there, you know, there are social and economic institutions. The whole thing is dystopian. It's grim and oppressive and horrible and shot through with fear and arbitrariness of various kinds. But it's not as if there isn't a social order. Indeed, the iron grip of the government is dedicated to preserving that social order and not just its own power, right? The apartheid governments want to preserve apartheid, which is a, a social, a form of social madness as opposed to just maintaining their own political power. Um, so I want, I, I wanted to, I, I wanted to resist the tendency of, of many people just to lump what I call terrorism and state terror together, they're both just this destabilizing the social order. Well, in a way, um, what state terror does is in a certain sense worse than that. They want to use fear to perpetuate and impose a, a social order, all right, but a social order of a particularly horrific kind, and that makes, makes for a difference with terrorism. Again, I'm not primarily interested in rankings of evils, but I do think that that's an example of something you just risk defining out of existence if you just say, oh, it's all terrorism, it all undermines social life. I mean, well, and it's actually interesting that fear can be used to get people either running around like chickens with their heads cut off, as it were, as a terrorist thing, to get everybody, you know, all panicked and, you know, disorderly, or to get everyone so fearful that they're afraid to step out of line and everyone marches in lockstep. That's a quite a fascinating difference and I think an important point about the political use of the fear, an example of the sort of thing that tends to be blurred in some of these more broader definitions. But I don't disagree with anything you say. Yes? I think you may just have answered my question, although I'm still not clear. When I read your papers, both hearing it and hearing your discussion here, I was I'm very impressed with your distinction between terrorism and state terror. What I think of especially like the way you show that terrorism can be institutional or individual, and state terror can, in a sense, right. put the fairness of the plan, etc. But I didn't, I didn't see that. I guess I still don't see the fact just how this marks um, a distinctive moral difference between terrorism and state terror. Conceptually, it seems to be shown, shown as you've just repeated, there's a very, very important difference between preserving an order versus undermining then maybe this is a semantic quibble. I don't want it to be just that, but well, why does that mark a distinctive moral difference? You, you, you are such pains to, to overcome the etymology. <coughs> to, to show that the important thing here is getting fear in the primary victims and then the most important, the secondary fear,
deliberately instilling fear, generalizing fear, in order to do X. Now, of course, X differs with X and Y when you're making the distinction conceptually between terrorism and state terrorism. Why, why have you thus identified a distinctive moral difference? Yeah. Well, you know, of course, it depends on what you mean by moral. What's going to count? Well, I mean, what is going to count as a moral difference? I mean, I th if what it means is a moral difference is a, dif a difference that affects our moral assessment, you know, there's something that sort of tips the balance in favor of legitimacy or illegitimacy or justifiability or unjustifiability. Yeah, in and of itself. Then I don't know that it is a moral difference in that sense. What I'm interested in is sort of mapping the terrain of moral phenomena, of moral of evils. That's really and in that sense, I it's moral in that it tells us that two things we both regard as abhorrent have a different character. I mean, the moral, you know, I view it as going to the sort of moral characterization of the phenomena. Moral in the sense that it's a morally salient um, phenomenon, and this is one of its defining features. So if you want to call that conceptual rather than moral, I wouldn't, you know, I, I don't care. I don't have any great stake in it, but it's a moral concept. So it's sort of moral conceptual as opposed to moral something something else. I don't know if that helps, but I'm inclined to want to say it is, um, it is uh, a semantic question, I think. You know, it might be moral in the stronger sense if somebody wanted to say, well, one of these things is actually worse than the other. You know, it's but worse. It's always worse to destroy rather than defend. Yeah, or alternatively, it's always worse to have a state, you know, sort of with all of its vast powers, you know, suffocating millions of people in these ways. Who knows? I mean, one could imagine it either way. Um, I just, I'm doing, as it were, sort of preliminary kind of just trying to paint the picture of what the moral, before we go, philosophers like everybody else, are very eager to you know, get clear about who's wrong and why. Um, before, I just want to get clear about what it is we're talking about, you know, what, what the problem is. So that's, that's the thought. Yes? Um, I had Dan's question as well, and, and if I'm not completely clear, I have to get your answer about that. But let me ask something else again on this. Okay, great. You were talking about this interesting phenomenon that fear could be used for these almost like opposite kinds of consequences. And you did talk about how state terror is important that you don't have the kind of safety net, sort of mental safety net that you have in with the rule of law because, you know, anyone can have knocking on your door in the middle of the night kind of fear that you don't have the rule of law. But it did seem to me there was still this difference that actually the state terror doesn't work if it's truly indiscriminate. That you can't do what um, you're, what you're calling a terrorist does. You can't instill that kind of fear in a society and use it to maintain the order. Because there has to be some sense that people have of what should I do to make myself somewhat safer. You know, keep my head down, stay away from those um, uh, ideologically suspect people, and then I will be safer. And if they don't have that sense, then they have no state in the order, and then the order won't work. Um, so it did strike me that there really is an important difference in the nature of the fear that uh, is involved in state terror versus the kind that's involved in striking this building, and who knows, tomorrow maybe that building and there isn't any real rhyme or reason for how it happens. Um, and then that may be part of the moral, 
qualitative difference between the two. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I want to disagree with that exactly, although I'm inclined to think that, you know, it's a, probably a matter of degree. I think that, you know, um, um, you know, there are probably levels or degrees of perceived immunity to fear that people have in authoritarian terror regimes. Now, some people may feel that they're relatively safe because they're inconspicuous or because they're connect, well connected or whatever. But I suspect that even in those cases, there's a there's a kind of ambient anxiety that it could all change in a flash. That you know that the you know that the 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 specter of the arbitrary exercise of terrifying power sort of looms over everyone, even the people who feel you know even government officials, even people who wield a lot of power, have know all too well, that, you know, they've seen their colleagues, you know, yanked out of meetings and taken down to the torture chamber, and the people who lead completely ordinary lives are sometimes, you know, denounced to the secret police by their enemies. So there are strategies in such regimes for minimizing fear, say, um, and um, certainly um, quite often the actual victims won't be chosen in proportion, you know, sort of completely proportion to the rest of the population. But, you know, and I think it's a good, you know, I'm, the, the project of trying to spell it out more to work out the details is one I'm, you know, quite sympathetic to and is in the spirit of what I'm trying to do. Um, I'm, and I don't know that I would say it's a different kind of fear. I mean, I did want to say that it, the, the effect of fear put to this use is to promote conformity and the desire to make yourself inconspicuous, to kind of become invisible, um, whereas terrorist violence is to get you kind of, you know, running around not knowing what to do. Um, and uh, so I don't regard that as, I guess, an, you know, a, a particular, anything I would want to resist. I mean, it seems to me uh, basically in keeping with what I want to say. Yeah. Um, I have some uh, questions about the methodology appealing to um, standard or current on cases. Yeah. Um, you didn't give, uh, I, I, I presume that you, you didn't mean to have given an exhaustive list of the paradigm cases or cases. Um, but I would, I would, um, I wondered if you were appealing to um, standard or paradigm cases as a way of not engaging issue of whether certain actions by um, powerful states, um, I had in mind uh, the U.S. use of um, nuclear weapons in the Second World War, or the U.S. Uh, use of um, uh, white phosphorus anti-personnel bombing in the Central American conflict, especially in El Salvador um, in the, in the uh, 80s. Um, I wondered if you wanted to steer away from a verdict about those kinds of cases. Um, in my own thinking about the, the need for defining and understanding terrorism and what's more distinctive, um, one of the things I think is very important to do is to at least um, sort of shatter the complacency that a lot of citizens of powerful countries have that any projection forced by their government, because their government is legitimate, any projection of force by the government is a fact that legitimate and not to be classified with these other cases. When you 
got to the analysis, it seems to me that the examples that I just cited would, would fall under the, the example of state terrorism. Um, they were certainly aimed at destabilizing the borders. They were uh, indiscriminate and so forth, and that's required here. So, but so I wonder, I wonder, um, I, I guess I think it's really important to get those categor categorized, let's say categorized with uh, the 9-11 um, terrorist strike at the World Trade Center, or even some more familiar cases where the individuals find a lot of, of um, people in occupied territories doing terrorist acts. Uh, so I wonder about the methodology, and if you share my concerns, if you share it, doesn't classify together. Um, well, I mean, I deliberately used the methodology I did as against the methodology, at least suggested by the, the tenor of your remarks. I mean, that's what I was talking about at the beginning, about the broad definition. I mean, I think a lot of people start out approaching these questions knowing that they want, because for moral reasons, that they want certain kinds of cases to turn out to be treated the same way. Um, and they think, therefore, that... Um, you know, to begin with the kinds of cases I was focusing on um, imports what I was saying, a kind of uncritical pro-state bias because, you know, in general, the, you know, more often than not, the destabilizing aim is going to be the aim of the people out of power, right, not the states. Although, as I go on to say, it doesn't have to be. States can also be, you know, go in for it. But, um, so, but I wanted to resist that the methodology of sort of starting from the moral conclusion and, and working backwards to the definition of terrorism precisely because although I understand the moral argument I think it's important to get clear about the variety of phenomena that one encounters and it's not going to stop anybody from saying they're just as bad even if they're different or maybe they are maybe they aren't so I was kind of trying to walk a fine line between on the one hand I certainly don't want to make it's somehow definitional of terrorism that it can only be done by non-state actors. Um, um, on the other hand, I don't want to assume that there's nothing morally distinctive about what I was calling the standard cases. Um, and so um, I didn't want to start with a broad definition that it's just sort of roughly inappropriate political violence directed against civilians. Um, and um, that leads, I mean, if, if the analysis I've given is correct, government actions can still be called examples of terrorism, and maybe some of the ones you mentioned are examples, um, and, um, you know, some other things can be called state terror. Some other things might be neither state terror nor terrorism, but they might be other equally horrible things. Um, I just want to sort of be, play a little with the, with the, individual characteristics of different kinds of things before addressing them. I guess I was thinking this way. If you think in terms of the standard cases as, as generating sort of prototypes, one of the salient features of the standard cases is going to be in prototypes if it's done by a group that does not have state agency. Yeah. And it seems to me that that's a morally irrelevant fact. So, I mean, you, some of your categorical differences don't track differences in moral relevant facts that track other things. Uh, includes it's not being the actions of the, the state, and in particular, 
is not being the actions of states that enjoys a high degree of legitimacy in the minds of all its own citizens. And that it's, I think it's really politically important to underline the fact that that is, whatever, whatever though it is a difference, it's got no moral significance at all. And uh, I think by the narrow definition you gave, the kinds of state actions that I described might well count as terrorism. So there's no reason anymore to lean very heavily on the, on the standard cases. But the standard cases I didn't define as ones in which there were non-state actors. Right. I, I, I didn't characterize the agents at all, except as people using these kinds of tactics. So, uh, and the conclusion was that states could do it. So, um, I'm, you know, I don't feel that I did make it paradigmatic of terrorism that it's conducted by a non-state agent. Um, I didn't go out of my way to define it in such a way so that it was obviously equal. You know, I mean, is that what states do and what non-state agents do is all terrorism. Um, and I didn't want to do that, partly because um, I wanted to see whether different patterns have different character, not, and then worry about which is what's worse than what. Um, so I wasn't trying to make a political point. Um, I wasn't trying to, I didn't have a political agenda. I had, my agenda was to try to um, engage in what I'm calling moral phenomenology and um, to try to excavate something about the different kinds of uses, to political uses to which fear and the, the nexus of fear and violence can be put. Yeah. So. My question is related to Louise's. Um, it's also about standard cases and exactly what you meant by that, Louise, uh, to a paradigmatic case. I was wondering whether, you, whether the picture you have is that this is the central case and the, the, the non-standard um, uses of terrorism are sort of, uh, you know, penumbral cases of terrorism. Um, I don't have the same as if uh, terror like violence could be used as a tool for all sorts of things, crossing uh, up a regime, undermining regime, uh, the, the one you suggest is, um, is ethnic cleansing or just getting American tourists not to go to a particular area or something like that, you know, preserving the, you know, the area of that kind of uh, regime. Um, and I guess I'm not inclined to think of the use of terror for these more limited means more limited ends than, um, than undermining uh, the regime as being uh, peripheral or, or non-central cases of terrorism. It seems to be terrorism used for a more limited purpose in the same way that, for example, the revolution may be distinguished from certain kinds of rebellion by a more limited scope, but not, you know, I mean, it's just the difference in the scope. It doesn't make one a central use of violence and the other uh, a uh, peripheral use of violence. So I guess I'm wondering what you meant by calling it a standard case and, and non-standard cases in that sense. Less clearly cases of terrorism because they don't share some of the characteristics that we think of as being crucial to getting at this notion of terrorism. Not necessarily. I mean, I took them to be sort of very, I took them, picked them because they're examples of what I think almost everyone will agree are terror, examples of terrorism. Um, you know, if you start reading the literature on terrorism, the number of definitions of terrorism is extraordinary. And um, it's in the hundreds, I think. And it's, you know, it's hard to believe in a way because there's only about four or five 
concepts being sort of, you know, <laughs> moved around on the chessboard there, but there are a lot of different things, and with all kinds of different consequences. I was just reading our old article by Carl Wellman. Um, he, I think, defines uh, terrorism as the use of terror to intimidate or coerce or something, and then says, well, he's a terrorist because... He threatens students that if they don't get their paper in on time, they're going to fail the course. So he's using terror to coerce them. Um, I, I didn't want to get into the definition thing, yet I wanted to have something to talk about. And it, so I, I wasn't meaning to say that these are paradigm cases, in that, in, in, as that phrase is normally understood. Um, I did want to say these are clear cases of terrorism. And... Um, and is something interesting going on in them, okay? For the cases that don't fit this model, some of them may also be quite clear cases of terrorism. That's fine, and then there'd be a question about are they moral, do they have morally a lot in common or not with what I'm talking about. Others of them, I might not consider terrorism at all. You might, you know, I don't consider Carl Wellman a terrorist because he, you know, tells his students to go to Boston. But, um, the... Um, I, w I did also want to emphasize that even in these standard cases, there can be lots of other aims that you have. And certainly, I don't think the aim of attacking tourists um, to, um, to, to, um, you know, to destroy a, a tourist in industry and hurt a national economy is, is obviously incompatible with what I'm talking about here. I mean... Um, certainly in Egypt, I mean, I think it is partly an aim of destabilizing the social order when, when, when those kinds of things go on in other places. So, um, but, but I'm happy to grant in, that there are a lot of other things going on. I'm also happy to grant that there are a lot of other cases that will not fit the definition of the standard case, but are perfectly good cases of terrorism. What I wanted to say is, look, here are some clear cases of terrorism which actually have a kind of interesting set of properties. And then... Um, that could easily be the first step toward a wider investigation of other kinds of terrorism. It's also been pointed out, you know, or suggested that this, the standard cases are, are maybe standard cases of terrorist campaigns or in which there are groups, you know, involved. That sort of single individuals doing one-off acts, you know, that might, we would, you know, somebody hijacks a plane to get their comrade released from prison <coughs> or something like that call that terrorism. It's no necessary destabilizing uh, thing. But on the other hand, if you think of, you know, long campaigns against targeting a civilian in a country with a clear political uh, agenda, um, that's a different uh, matter. Um, but I, I'm of two minds about that. I mean, I'm inclined to think that um, somebody like Timothy McVeigh kind of fits the standard case pattern pretty well, even though he was well, I mean, not, it was a, a one-off event, we hope, so far. Um, but I don't, mean to, I, don't, I don't mean to be claiming sort of conceptually privileged ground and holding it um, in an illicit way. And standard, you know, may be tendentious in that way, but I didn't, I didn't mean to be doing that. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think about... Um, I, I, I want to invite you to say more about the relation between the framework you have think about terrorism on the one hand and the question of discriminacy or indiscriminacy about targets and the manipulative purposes that terrorism sometimes has in mind yeah. on the other. I mean, I'm, I'm imagining sort of a continuum where on the one hand you have 
sort of pure and complicated threat. If you do this, then we will sort of harm you. And I don't guess that's terrorism in the sense you're talking about. But in fact, it could be morally unproblematic. I mean, Hobbes more or less has what he has in mind, a threat if you break the law. And nothing special is morally problematic about that. On the other end, there's just sort of pure brouhaha and malevolence where, you know, we just want to hurt you and we don't care who it is and we're not trying to get you to do anything other than suffer. Right? But in the middle, or most of the cases of terrorism, I'm guessing, that we're interested in, where there actually, it actually is the case that, as to a certain extent, terrorists want to maybe not target particular people, but that that would be the most efficient way to go about their business at some level would be trying to change people's behaviors by saying, if you were on this side, then you're a target, and if you're on that side, you're not. Or maybe it's a thing where they have a more complicated mechanism in the middle where they have to throw in this intermediate indiscriminacy um, to get where they're going. I, I realize this sounds very rambling, but just if you could say a bit about how that question sort of it, discrepancy or indiscriminacy and manipulate, manipulatory sort of ends Yeah, <clears throat> I don't know. I, I'm not sure I know what you're after exactly. Um, I mean, my <clears throat> thinking was that clearly in these standard cases, and I think this is a co- you know a commonly noted feature of terrorism, part of the impact comes from the perception of indiscriminateness. Um, um, and it strikes me that often that's exactly what the aim is to achieve, a perception of indiscriminateness. It's often a highly structured form of indiscriminateness. It's indiscriminate, you know, you know, the, uh, you know, the Al-Qaeda guys didn't care which particular people showed up at the World Trade Center that day. It was in that sense indiscriminate, but they picked the target. You know, and it, was, it was relative to a particular class. And that's true for lots of, you know, ethnic and religious terrorism. Um, you know, you bomb a, a church or, a, you know, a, a place of worship and a matter of indifference who happens to be there at the time. The point is made, but, you know, made relative to a certain group. So, but I guess what I thought is that what's characteristic is the aim to try to balance two things. On the other, on the one hand, there is a group that you that you want to threaten, um, and it's a determinate group. Um, it's not random. On the other hand, you want as many people in that group as possible to be scared, and so it's one way to achieve that is by picking, as it were, randomly within the group. Um, you know, you throw a bomb into a movie theater. You don't care which particular people are there. What you care about is these are members of Population X. And now all members of Population X will worry, oh, what's going to happen if I go to a movie theater? And that's good if you're targeting Population X. So it both is and isn't indiscriminate. I mean, it's sort of selectively indiscriminate. And as I said, I take the part of the perception of indiscriminateness is to try to maximize, to, to subvert the defense, the defense mechanism of disidentification. Oh, I'm not one of them, so I don't have to worry about this. Make, make, the more indiscriminate you can make it, the more you have to realize you, you could be one of them. But, of course, there's always a them there that has to be defined first by figuring out who you're after. And sometimes it's very big. You know, it could be any American, say. 
sometimes it can be quite small, but even when it's quite small, there's advantages in this indiscriminate group. You want the whole group worried. I mean, that's, um, that's part of it. Um, and, you know, I think it's that is one reason, along with the destabilize, the aim of promoting destabilizing, why bombs are so favored by terrorists. Um, they get a lot of publicity. They get everybody running around. They get everybody worried. They, they, they seem, they're not well equipped as targeting particular people for the most part. They just sort of, um, they generate the kind of uh, chaos and anxiety that is often sought. Anyway, I don't know, I don't know if I've addressed what you said, but. <laughs> okay. Yes, Alex. Um, I wanted to push a little bit on the category of civilian or non-combatants, yeah. seems to function almost as kind of a natural kind or sort of an unproblematic background assumption for, to ground our moral intuitions. And um, it seems to me that terrorists themselves don't make the distinction between combatants and non-combatants. Um, we in the West didn't until World War II involving German and Japanese cities. Um, and more generally, the whole category of civilian non-combatant is a relatively recent modern invention. Um, and so, from that standpoint, terrorism looks more like a contestation over this boundary than necessarily uh, problematic. Um, and obviously, I'm not endorsing terrorism from any analytic point. I guess so the question I wanted to ask was, uh, would terrorism still be morally distinctive in a world where the distinction between civilian and, and combatants is not well, you know, I, again, one of the luxuries of not claiming to be defining terrorism was that I don't have to um, now send, defend this or that aspect of the definition. The, 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 you know, as you know, the the, the, the definition, the relevant definition of innocence, or what the relevance of civilian or non-combatant status is exactly, is enormously contested. Um, it's a staple of just war theory, um, and there is controversy about how, if at all, it should be built into the definition of terrorism. Some people, you know, some, a lot of people tend to see terrorism through the lens of just war theory, and they tend to want to then bring this, see that as a crucial feature of uh, terrorism, that it attacks civilians and non-combatants. It's kind of an extension of, of war, and, it's an extent, and then you get an extension of just war theory. Um, other people think, no, it's terrorism. You know, the attack on the USS Cole, that was terrorism. It wasn't attacking non-combatants. Um, and it's the wrong, wrong category. I didn't want to um, address that question. I think it raises actually deep issues. Um, but I, I, I wanted to focus again on a few cases that I think are cases that, when it happens that way, everybody's inclined to agree that it was terrorism. That's all I want to say about it. And so I think that when the people attacked are civilians or non-combatants, um, and the other conditions I've described are met, most people will not hesitate much to call it terrorism. Whether, in the end, we should limit what we consider terrorism to attacks on civilians or non-combatants is another question altogether, and I meant deliberately to be bypassing 
that issue. I mean, I think there are obvious problems about the distinction, even in just war theory, let alone um, in regard to terrorism. So I'm not sure. I mean, I think in regard to your hypothetical question, in a world in which, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be imagining, a world in which nobody cares about the difference between civilians and militants. Yeah. So in a world in which we take for granted the legitimacy of massacring civilians or we don't have this very hard distinction between combatants and non-combatants. Yeah. It's a little hard to know how much we're holding fixed here in the counterfactual. I mean, I guess if we're in the world of Genghis Khan, there's a sense in which what the hell anything goes. But um, <laughs> um, I'm not sure what moral idea ideas were allowed to were allowed to bring place. So I don't know quite what to say about it. I, I can imagine somebody thinking that the combatant non-combatant distinction doesn't really bear a lot of weight, but still thinking that terrorism was a bad thing generally. Um, so I wasn't prepared to insist or to or and thinking that there was such a phenomenon as terrorism. So I wasn't prepared I, I was trying to be agnostic about that. Um, which may seem like just cheating, but that's what I, I want. It's a way, a form of cheating I wished to engage in. Yes? yes um, I appreciate that you are working with the idea that there are many kinds of that, and you're interested in eliminating one form of something that is mm-hmm. really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gets to your saying you're doing more phenomenology rather than really engaging yes. in moral evaluation. Yeah, yeah. So something preliminary to moral evaluation. Yeah. But I assume that the features you're highlighting when you're doing your moral phenomenology are the features that are to become relevant um, when we do the moral evaluation or illuminate why we are so horrified by certain acts. Um, right. Now, I thought this was very interesting, interesting way of thinking about certain cases of terrorism, at least. And the interesting thing is that the model here makes this, explains um, the objectionableness in terms of making it a type of abuse. Um, and I was thinking about abuse individual and individual. And it certainly sometimes takes the form of uh, you know, you don't kill, you keep the person alive, but you keep the person in perpetual fear that something will happen to her and it's rather unpredictable. And it can be analogous to your standard cases of terrorists in that you're trying to devastate the person. Mm-hmm. Or it can be analogous to the, the state terror, as you talked about it. So the the, the, the point is to maintain a certain power structure in the relationship. Now, I was thinking, I've had an interesting analogies here, but of course there is huge disanalogy between the cases as well. And I was wondering what are the more relevant disanalogies, you know, thinking about how this fits into the evaluation. Um, is it just that there are more people involved? Or is the it disanalogies between what and what? The, the, the abuse, individual on an individual, or um, uh-huh. a group on a group. Is it that um, 
is the difference simply that there are more victims, or is the, is it morally relevant that what is being exploited is a mechanism of identification, or is it relevant that what happens is that you destroy sort of uh, social relations between people and ability to have the sort of uh, communal relations that uh, make for better lives. So, so I was thinking, I was wondering whether you had any thoughts on what are some of the morally interesting differences between the, the individual case and the group case? Well, I guess it would help me to have a little bit of a clearer picture of what, how, what the individual case that you're imagining is exactly. Um, are we imagining some lunatic who just tries to terrorize a person for his own pleasure? Is that the... Well, you can take a case like um, something growing out of... Um, obvious differences, how morally relevant they are is something that one would have to think about. I mean, in the cases I was imagining, um, sort of, you know, one, one person is killed to make other people afraid. Okay, so that's already, the, that's the first step in the process. And then the fear of the other people is used to try to degrade social life more generally. Um, and this kind of case that you're talking about doesn't seem to have that sort of three-part structure. I mean, it's one person wants to terrorize another person um, for its own sake or out of to feelings of revenge or to establish dominance or, you know, out of pure sadism. Um, so, I think that some of the elements are missing uh, from those cases. Whether um, I think some of the missing elements are morally relevant, um, you can describe cases that become closer to it. I mean, if you get someone who, you know, you know, a killer who kills somebody because he knows that his intended main victim is someone who will be you know will be heartbroken so you kill someone they care about to make the second person miserable and if you start doing this randomly so that all everyone in the neighborhood is afraid that it will happen to them you're beginning to look more and more like a terrorist in this sense but just the case that um, of a single person terrorizing someone they know um, out of some you know sick desire to maintain you know dominance or to demonstrate dominance and to sort of create misery for its own sake seems to me um, to leave out some of the some of the elements that go into making terrorism distinctive. I should emphasize, I mean I have a footnote, what makes what's morally distinctive about a phenomenon may not be what's morally worst about it. 
I mean, even the, terror, the stamp case of terrorism, what's morally worst about it, maybe people are killed, you know, maybe very simple, what was morally worst about, you know, 9-11 uh, was all those people who were killed. Um, you know, the, the other stuff, what I'm calling the treating as a means to a means, is more distinctive. Um, but, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean it's worse. You just don't want to engage that issue. I, I realize there are differences between the cases, yeah. but I was wondering what, what the sort of the morally significant differences. Is it just a matter of scale, how many people are involved, and maybe also a matter of you don't just inflict pain, you actually kill someone in order to instill. Well, I think they're all morally significant. I mean, uh, I, I mean, I think there are morally look, there are distinctive bad things going on in the terrorist case that are not going on in the one-person case. Um, as you originally described it, nobody's been killed. Um, there's no broader effort to destabilize the social order. So there's some bad stuff in the terrorist case, not in this case. On the other hand, there's some bad stuff going on in the one-person case that isn't going on in the terrorism case. A known person is deliberately, there's no indiscriminateness, they've targeted you and they want you to suffer, and you know who they are, or maybe you don't, but in many cases you do know who they are. It's your ex-spouse or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, so I think there's a, a, a whole lot of differences between the two, and I, they're all of prima facie moral significance. I mean, I, beyond that, I'm, I'm a little hard-pressed to know what to say. I mean, I'm inclined to think they're both awful. So in that sense, they're both awful, but they are awful for slightly different reasons, um, and some of the same reasons. And um, I don't know, you know, what else there is to say about them. I mean, um, that's why I, I, I don't find it so illuminating to just talk about, you know, to start by saying which is worst or which is, you know. No, I wasn't yeah. trying to engage that. But just what the reasons are, you know, is it just because there are more people involved? No, it's not. Is it because we're exploiting... Finish the sentence, though. I mean, is it just because of these things that what um, that terrorism is? Are all these reasons for uh, deeming this morally wrong, or and maybe equally important reasons? Um, I think that the attempt to destabilize the society, the attempt to exploit the fear of others, the engaging in violence to create fear so that it can be. Uh, exploited, just the engaging in unjustified violence are all things that make it wrong in virtually all, if not all, cases. So it's overdetermined why most acts of terrorism are wrong. And that means there's just a lot of things making it wrong. And I don't think it's wronger, so to speak, um, than cases of individual terrorization of the kind. I mean, they're wrong too. They're wrong for um, for mostly different reasons, although there is a common element of the deliberate infliction of fear. I mean, those are cases of uh, sadism. And terrorism, you know, has a sadistic aspect to it, a kind of social sadism. I mean, the desire to have everybody frightened and terrified and, you know, and then put that to political purposes. Um, I mean, the political purposes is what sort of saves it from looking 
sadistic, but it often has a strong element of sadism in it. Um, and to that extent, it has something in common with these cases. But I don't think, we, um, when you say is it just the numbers that is the only morally relevant difference, I know there are a lot of morally relevant differences, but they're hard to, but since both things are, you know, atrocities, I mean, <laughs> it, it's, um, it, the differences aren't going to show up as a difference in whether you can justify them or not. Yes. Um, like others, I, I like your idea of uh, state care producing social order uh, through the impoverishment of social conditions and uh, making people march in lockstep. But in your talk, you, just, you distinguish that from law, which you said doesn't undermine social life, <coughs> thinking that law is a form of state terrorism. And the example given um, about what you gave up a plan reminds us that the plan in many respects is enforcing Jim Crow law, um, which is an you know, explicit, deliberate attempt by the state to impoverish social and political organizing capacity by a large proportion of the population. And even today, social life is replete with laws that either intentionally or not um, make it harder for certain groups to organize whether it's sex, race, gender, what have you, um, such that it's it's not like there's a, there's not a good dichotomy, but they're, uh, they're both instruments of the state, terror and law, and that maybe they shouldn't be separated as, as, as alternatives to the way that I think it comes across in the uh, Well, <clears throat> um, that seems to me a little overstated. I mean... Deliberate. Oh. <laughs> well, then, um, we're in agreement. Um, the, you know... Um, Sure, law can be used as an instrument of terror, um, and under a regime of state terror, it, uh, it commonly is, and maybe in, at other times in, in uh, societies that are not in general regimes of state terror may, put, may, um, may do some of it with particular, uh, with particular sets of laws at particular times, but I still think there's an enormous difference between living in a society that's governed by the rule of law and living under a regime of state terror. Um, you know, I, of course, I'm describing these as two sort of ideal types, and in fact, as I said, you know, even under, even in the best societies, um, the rule of law is an ideal that's imperfectly achieved. Um, and even in a, under a regime of state terror, not everyone may be equally terrified. But still, I would resist the idea that law just is terror, um, or that, and I don't quite see the basis for saying that. I mean, I can see the basis for saying that some laws are instruments of state terror in some contexts, um, but I didn't hear in what you were saying a general reason for thinking that law per se is terror or is an instrument of terror? No, not per se, but you, you stipulated that state terror has particular functions. I should also stipulate as well that I'm wondering whether or not it matters to you that you, you do attribute intentionality to all your actors, and I'm wondering where that comes from, as opposed to just talking about the effects of the existence, the, the effects of the acts. And you actually talk as if you know that every terrorist act is deliberately intended to produce the effect that you observe. I don't know whether or not that matters to you. No, because all, all I, I mean, it's, it's meant to be circular. I'm only talking about the ones that 
that have that feature. Uh-huh. But I'm not, yeah. The state terror thing, I mean, you, the signature feature of state terror is the reproduction of the regular social order through the inducing people to march in lockstep and to prevent them or preclude them from engaging in what you call, I love your phrase, impoverishment of social life, right? Well, we have extreme examples of that, you know, Jim Crow, apartheid, and so forth. I assume you would call that history of state terror. They also have indirect effects of, you know, a, a very liberal state, let's say the United States. You know, zoning laws, how public education is financed, so forth and so on. I mean, there are a plethora of laws whose explicit intentions are not to politically disempower or politically decapitalize groups in country, uh, groups in the country from organized politically, but have that effect. Right? So I know, I know it's not, you know, it's not safe here blowing up people and killing people or arbitrarily or you know, randomly assigning people for arrest, but I don't think, I don't, I don't think it's a, a difference in kind. It's a difference in degree. Are you imagining that it does this by the use of fear, or that it does it just, it's just an effect of law that it, I mean, a lot of... Fear gay men, fear kissing them. As a result of law... Well, that's true, the American men then try, probably didn't do much good for kissing in public. Yeah, I mean, but I'm, look, there are some specific, it seems to me there are two different things that you're sort of citing, you know, without clearly distinguishing them. One are cases of what arguably is something that's related to state terror. I mean, that is, um, in which, in a society that otherwise considers itself a liberal society governed by the rule of law, there are pockets of um, sort of legally sanctioned terrorization, let's say, that, that that persist. And... I'm happy to grant that, you know, we live in a lousy world and even in the best societies, there, there's bound to be cases like that and they're significant. Um, but then there's this other general phenomenon which is that unintendedly all kinds of laws and regulations have the effect of making certain things easier for some people to do and harder for other people to do. And, you know, we inevitably all law has the function of structuring relationships in a sense. And I certainly agree with that, but I'm not convinced yet that that is tantamount to state terror. Um, I think not all forms of social uh, organization that have the effect of discouraging some kinds of uh, social forms and some kinds of patterns of relationship and encouraging others uh, are illuminatingly thought of as terrorist or terror like in their character. Now, it's an interesting question what the differences are, um, whether it's a difference in intentionality. I mean, I certainly think that part of it is that there's a difference in that those cases typically do not involve terror. They do not involve fear. I also think it's relevant that it's, that it's inevitable that any form of social organization will encourage some patterns of interaction, discourage others. So I'm, you know, I... I I accept the first point. I see the second one as, a, as overreaching a bit, um, but I confess that I have not thought through in a way that would enable me to give a kind of considered sort of uh, analysis of what exactly the relevant differences are between ordinary social constraint and state terror. But yeah. I was asking one example. Yeah. How do you characterize um, the fear of black men entering various neighborhoods in the United States? There's a law against 
the fear that they experience on entering certain... They would never do it. They would never think of going to Terminator. It's too scary. They know that they're going to be targeted. Yeah. They fear. Yeah, and white people fear going into certain neighborhoods, too. There's a lot of fear in society. Go to the black issue. They're actually like law. Well... Well, what's the relevance of the laws in that case? I mean, they can be afraid whether or not there's a law. I mean, the laws may say nothing about this, and they may still be afraid. So what's the point about the law? I mean, are you asking it in a case where the law says they shouldn't be there? No. Or are you asking in a case where the law says it's fine for them to be there, but they're still afraid because they don't, they don't think the law is going to be used to protect them? Why are they afraid? Is it terror or not? Is it ter- terror or not? Well, it's... Sure, fear is fear. Terror is terror. There's all there's all kinds of people in society who are afraid of all kinds of things. I mean, I, I'm not. I mean, it doesn't all have to count as either terrorism or state terror. Um, there are look. There are a lot of pathology, social pathologies, that um, whose pathological character um, involves, at least in part. Um, the prevalence of fear among a certain group of people in certain situations. Um, I didn't mean, I don't think that the, ter- that the categories of terrorism and state terror exhaust all of the pathologies of fear, one might say. And I wouldn't be inclined to try to shoehorn all of the pathologies of fear into one of those two categories. It just seems to be misleading and a distortion. I think there are interesting things to be said about other kinds of fear. And, I, um, and those are interesting cases, um, but not examples of either of the above is, 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 what, I, is what I would want to say. Um, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting question to what extent a society can reasonably aspire to be entirely free of fear or to, to enable people to be entirely free of fear or to be entirely free of reasonable fear. Um, and what counts as reasonable fear. There's a lot of questions there, um, which I didn't uh, mean even to be raising, let alone addressing. But, um, but, I, but again, I, I accept that there are a broader class of social pathologies of fear and would not be inclined to try to classify them under either of these two headings as a general matter. I fear that if I call it off right now, it'll just go on for too long. We do have a reception. It's not the end of questions, but I want to give uh, Sam a chance to catch his breath and thank him and invite everybody to join us outside. Thank you. Thank you. Save my questions for Uh, later. Does this thing get turned off? Uh, it doesn't matter. It's as long as uh, the machine will go off and on. What happens to that? I should have asked.